Okay, so when we start, are we looking at each other, starting... I think we'd want to address our audience. Okay. That makes sense. Straight into that middle camera. The middle camera right there. Yeah. So, what do you suppose we say? Should we introduce ourselves, probably? Or no, let's not introduce ourselves. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) I don't like that. I would X out. Yeah. Wouldn't you X out? Uh, yeah. So George Floyd's murder happened uh, almost over over a month ago now. And the state of the country has been in utter turmoil since then. A lot has happened. A lot has been on people's minds. And people want change. I think for the first time in a really long time, there's a large part of the country that's sick and tired of the status quo and wants to be involved in the political system and wants changes to happen. You know, you hear things like defund the police, vote people out of power, vote the right people into power. Um, And I think the overwhelming sentiment in America right now is that people want to see things be different. People want to be involved. Definitely. Yeah, so much has happened over the past few months. And I definitely think that uh, a lot of people even feel like, you know, they feel kind of helpless. They feel like they're underrepresented. I think there's definitely a lot going on in the political sphere of America right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and a lot of these, a lot of protesters, uh, a lot of people who feel really strongly about the issues facing this country right now are, are going out and demanding that things change and and want things to be different. But they're at this crossroads where they. Um, want something to happen, but don't know how to do it. Because for most of our lives, for many people, they haven't really been involved in the political process. I think people are actually um, kind of unattracted to the political process uh, these days, kind of because they feel like things are just happening to them and they're just swept along. They don't really have any control over the laws that are being made or the people that are being voted into power, you know? Yeah, I know I personally felt that way for the longest time. When when I just turned 18, I didn't really know what all was going on in politics. And I definitely wanted to get more involved, but I didn't know what I could achieve out of getting involved in it and how to properly actually make the right decisions when I did get involved in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people relate to that. I know for myself personally, my, my dad is super involved in politics uh, but myself, you know, as a student, there's there's only so much time in the day. And I remember one election cycle, my dad just handed me a ballot that was pre-filled out with the people that he thought I should vote for. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, I would probably agree with him. And I ended up submitting that ballot. But it, it really makes you wonder if that's the state of things where voting has become such a hassle where where I just accept it, I just accept something like that, you start to wonder whether um, it's even a value that we cherish anymore, at least speaking for myself. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely agree, because I remember the first time that I went to vote, I walked. I was walking into the voting poll booth, and there was this person who handed me like a brochure of sorts outside in the line, and it literally had all of the candidates that that person was endorsing and they were like, vote for these people. And I personally, you know, I'd done my research, but 
I wasn't necessarily an expert and my mind was definitely very malleable. Mm -hmm. So I remember that having an effect on me. I didn't necessarily vote for every person that she had on her list, but I can definitely attest to the fact that there were certain uh, positions on that ballot that I didn't really even know what their function right, was. Right. So since I didn't know, I just kind of looked at that brochure she'd handed me and thought, okay, I don't really know either of these people. I don't know what they do or what how it affects me. Mm -hmm. And so I just filled out what that brochure said mm -hmm. on the ballot for those uh, minor areas. And then, uh, because at that time, uh, I thought they were minor areas. Mm -hmm. No area is certainly a minor area. Uh, which I've come to understand as time has passed. But uh, at that time, that's how I right. felt. Right, yeah. You see this huge list of people, district attorney, county commissioner, sheriff, etc. Sometimes uh, 15, 20 different positions. And you're right. When I see those, I, I just, my first thought is I've never even heard of this position. And that's a little concerning, especially considering the fact that going back to all the protests and the unrest that's happening in the country today, a lot of the changes that people want to be seen made can only really happen at the local level. For example, you want some police accountability. You want the funding of your police department to be re redistributed or something like that. Um, that depends on something like your district attorney, your local sheriff, things like that. And, 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 and so I, I think Barack Obama came out with a statement uh, regarding this about the importance of the local vote. Uh, and I've been thinking about that a lot recently. I, I think I've been a little lax in my approach to local voting. Yeah, and I think uh, due to the recent events, you know, I've really, uh, it's been very eye-opening for me, and I've really come to understand how important it is to understand the fact that my self-interest is tied to the political process. Mm -hmm. And earlier, I'd kind of just be lazy, and I'd kind of put it off, and I wouldn't think much about it. Um but, you know, in, in light of recent things, it's really, really urged me to kind of get more involved and, mm -hmm. and figure these things out more mm -hmm. um, just so that I'm myself and a better citizen and making sure that I am representing myself. And with that realization uh, comes this idea that voting isn't isn't just this random intuitive thing that you can just do. It's a skill. It's a, something that takes time to uh, nurture and educate yourself about just like any other skill just like playing basketball just like learning how to cook or dance or sing if you want to vote and like you said represent not just yourself but the interests of people around the nation you have to educate yourself you know we kind of have come to think of voting and democracy as this um, unambiguous good that's just a good thing regardless of how we do it um, but we have to what we have to realize is that Democracy is only as effective as all the education systems that surround it. Yeah, definitely. And there is uh, there's so many nitty gritty details that you can get into. You know, uh, not everyone has the time to be, get their JD or their political science PhD, mm -hmm. which uh, finally highlights everything. But I think that ultimately uh, there's a lot of stigmas that limit our thinking in the sense that we often tend to find ourselves falling into these certain groups and alliances and, and we fall prey to mentality of groupthink. Mm -hmm. And uh, through these, we oftentimes lose a lot of our individuality that's important to be represented 
in the vote when we vote as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I think this this group think uh, comes in a lot of ways from the, the, the two-party system and this uh, false dichotomy of you have to either be a Democrat or a Republican because that's kind of the the way the political system works nowadays. Um, and what that does is it simplifies choices for people. We've come to think of policies and people as either good or bad without stopping to look at them as ideologies and assessing which parts of them can help society or harm it uh, and, and being eclectic in our views. You know, we, we've come to this point where we want a really simple story. We want to put all our eggs in one basket. Um, and I think that's, that's to our disadvantage because the reality is that real life isn't black or white. There's a lot of gray area. There's people who you might disagree with, but that doesn't make them evil. They might actually have some good ideas. They might even advocate for things that you didn't know about that would help you. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, politicians take advantage of this a lot of times when they play identity politics. Mm -hmm. And so do large uh, news media sources when they try to group us into these lumps and they uh, exploit us this way to certain degrees Mm -hmm. without acknowledging our individualism. And um, I think that oftentimes uh, you, you can find yourself falling into these groups and then having the feeling to kind of think more individualistically, but feeling limited in the sense of the ability to do so because you feel like you'll be alienated yeah. from your peer group. Yeah. 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 Like the, that peer group that was almost imposed onto you by the media, by politicians, by, by people telling you that you are nothing more than your, um, for example, your, your gun loving identity, your second amendment identity or your LGBTQ plus identity. Uh, and, and that was a really good point that identity politics, while they can be a champion of, of um, underrepresented communities, they're also something that news media and politicians use against us. They're a, a divisive tool um, that works really well for elections, but it pits the country against itself. And there's no better example of that than what's happening in the country right now. I think we're in this really divided place uh, and and both politicians and the media are capitalizing this like crazy, you know, depending on which media source you're looking at, you know, uh, whether it's Fox News, CNN or anything in between, uh, you're seeing two very, very different pictures of what's happening in the country right now. Uh, and the polarization has gotten to this point where um, I, I just feel like people on either side of the aisle just can never look at the other person in the eye again, you know. Yeah, and you know, I think that it's it's definitely got so polarized that we've been blocking out one side from the other. But I think one thing that we should always try to remember is there's always multiple sides to a story. Mm-hmm. And y- you uh, want to try to kind of like at least, uh, at least familiarize yourself with all the sides of the story to get a holistic perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that a good way that I've found that works for me at least is that I like to diversify my news sources in the sense that I I like to consume news from your standard news media sources, such as like CNN Mm -hmm. and Fox News and MSNBC. But I also like to go towards uh, consuming news from your local news sources, Mm -hmm. like the ones that are publicly funded and nonprofit. Um, And uh, I think another great, great resource is blog posts from people who actually experienced the events firsthand. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think all these combined kind of give me a, a not definitely not a perfect picture of what happened, but it, it gives me kind of like at least an understanding that, oh, this is a, there, this perspective is out there, but also this perspective is out there. And then I can kind of draw my own conclusions from that. I think that's a really good point. I, I like the word eclectic that you used. Um, I think you used that. Oh, word. did I use it? Yeah, that, that makes sense why I like it then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but that you're exactly right. You uh, you look at the you look at every source not just because you want to know what's happening, but because it's important that you know what people who disagree with you are looking at. Because if you don't look at that, then you're never going to understand why you disagree. You're never going to be able to find that common ground, and um, you will play into that political game of divide and conquer that is so often played by uh, the political elite. Yeah, um, yeah you know, uh, for the longest time, I kind of felt like uh, I I used to only watch CNN just because that's what uh, people in my family used to mm -hmm. watch. They used to just have it playing. Uh, and I just, you know, just because I saw my parents always watching CNN, I just always watched CNN. I always thought, okay, CNN is where I go to for my news. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, as I got older... I had the ability to think for myself and I was like, okay, wait, no, there's so many other news sources out there. There's like BBC, PBS, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. list, the whole list. And, um, it, it, when I, when I start, when the first time I started branching out of what I was taught by my family, I just, just realized that I was missing a complete, such a large mm. portion of this world. Yeah. I was totally blind basically to basically half the story, right? Yeah, yeah, well, more than half, right? Yeah, right. Um, and 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 the reason why I think the reason why we are, are are given these consistent narratives throughout, especially our childhood, our most impressionable time, is that most of us live in silos, ideological yeah. silos, where the same ideas are either passed down generation generationally, excuse me, or are the communities that we live in just really socially reinforce specific ideas, but not others. Uh, I know for me at university, uh, definitely I'm, I'm in a silo. Uh, people who are in the minority group, um, I mean, I'll just say, like I go to a pretty liberal school, even though it's in the South, um, and conservatives genuinely feel scared to come out and, and bring up a view that's different than what everyone else is saying. And I think that's a problem not just because you're making people feel bad, but because um, you're festering division without even realizing it, you know? Yeah, in regards to festering division, I really think that I personally uh, have definitely seen that at my university as well. I, I think I see a lot of students who feel uncomfortable in sharing their views just because they feel slightly threatened. And... I, I think that definitely we, we should be working towards creating a more open, welcoming mm -hmm. environment that is more inclusive. And I think it really, on the micro level, it comes down to how we consume our media in the sense that we are kind of like just, we're always on social media, we're always like watching things mm -hmm. on YouTube and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so... On this micro level of how we spend a lot of our free time just to pass our free time, it's it's like YouTube and Facebook, they're actively monitoring what we like and what we watch and mm -hmm. how long we watch it for, everything. They, they pretty much know us better than we know ourselves. And so I think 
these media forms take such a huge advantage of this and then they latch onto us and they keep feeding us and reinforcing mm. our personal viewpoints and and when they suggest new content to us they make sure it's tailored to our personal preference because they know that we're more likely to engage with it and watch it mm -hmm. and i think on that micro level this just ingrains in us the fact that we are right and everyone else mm. is wrong and you know this is kind of why i think this a lot of this polarization is going mm -hmm. on i think it's a major contributor it's it's for sure one of the biggest reasons why us versus them is stronger than ever in america today uh, i think i i heard that on facebook as you're scrolling through different posts you don't even have to like a post or read an article for them to know that you've been looking at it uh, if you've just been spending some time just you know just scrolling through and spend like a couple more nanoseconds on one post versus the other they know they pick up on that and then they'll send you relevant political ads and i, I think what all is this to say is that um people in power organizations in power companies in power corporations in power all play off of identity politics and um the fact that people can be divided and more easily controlled uh, and manipulated when they really strongly feel that they're part of an identity, right? Nothing is more important to us than our identities. Um, and and a great example, another example of identity politics is party politics, well, which is how, which is essentially how we consider parties as <laughs> as some of our identities. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, you know, I think uh, in it, going further into party politics, you know, uh, and and Facebook, like, you know, I'll be scrolling through Facebook and, you know, I'll, I'll get the ad where, you know, Joe Biden's smiling and Trump's like a black and white, got yeah, the grumpy yeah, yeah. face. Yeah, that's a good one. And then uh, I'll be scrolling through uh, Facebook and I'll get the Trump looking in his suit, looking all good, mm. walking down, mm -hmm. like, you know with a big smile on his face. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think that, you know, party politics, they're, they're really just, you know, trying to take advantage of our basic instincts and, like, just I identify us and lump us into these certain groups mm -hmm. and then kind of, I don't know, it's just kind of sleazy sometimes. Yeah, I, was, I, I saw I got a, a similar ad um, from, I think this one was from the, tr this one was from the Trump campaign. Yeah. And it, it was just asking... Uh, in November, who are you going to vote for, Donald Trump or a lion sleazy Democrat? Uh, and then who who is a better leader for this country, Donald Trump or sleepy, creepy Joe? You know, stuff like that. Complete, yeah. complete party politics. Uh, no regard to the merits of either candidate, which goes without saying. Yeah. And it, it almost reminds me of, um, you know, I would learn about this stuff in AP US history. I really thought this stuff was left behind in the 1800s, but there's this thing called yellow dog journalism where uh, these elections would ultimately be decided on these newspaper articles where one candidate would be accusing the other of being, you know, like hiring prostitutes and, and sleeping around with people. And the other candidate would clap back and be like, oh, but he doesn't tip the, his waitresses and he just smokes and plays pool all day. It's stuff like that. Uh, and I almost feel like we're back in the, the 1800s, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the 1800s, <laughs> what, why do we still have the Electoral College? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great point, actually, uh, because the Electoral College is actually um, intimately tied to all of this. At least 
the themes that um, connect the two. So I, I guess I guess we ask why did we have the before we ended that question we have to ask why did we have the electoral college in the first place? Definitely, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that the electoral college was initially created because the, a large part of America back in the day was uh, considerably illiterate and mm -hmm. uh, people wanted to protect the vote and 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 in a sense even like bar the vote from from citizens who who were illiterate which like you know it just gave the vote to an elite few right and um and even surpassing that the electoral college was just a system where they wanted to make sure that people there was kind of like a buffer between the citizens mm -hmm. and who actually got voted mm -hmm. into office so mm -hmm. if for some reason this electoral college thought that the citizens weren't doing the right thing then they'd be able to step in and be like okay let's protect the country let's save the country right but so you know how like, does that how does that work again like uh how does what work like uh, as in how how does the electoral college serve as a buffer between the people and the candidate oh sure yeah so you know uh for example talking about california mm -hmm. there uh california has 55 uh right. electoral college delegates right and so um each of those uh, 55 people, depending on how the people in California vote, if the majority of California votes blue, then all of those 55 electoral college people normally will vote blue. Right. Um, and it'll activate like the Democratic side of the electoral mm -hmm. college in that state. And then if, if it happens to be red um, and the majority of the population of the state of California votes red, mm -hmm. then it'll invoke the red side of the electoral college of that state and all those 55 electoral college, electoral college <laughs> votes yeah, of that state will go to the Republicans. Right. So, so uh, the important part there is that regardless of who wins the red part of that state or the blue part of that state, all 55 are going to go to one candidate. Right. Right. And I guess, um, I, I guess that that outdated system made sense in the past when there needed to be a buffer between. Um, the masses in quotes and uh, politics, but these days people have pretty readily or people have pretty ready access to political information and are much more, much better equipped to make informed decisions. So I, I've heard a lot of initiatives to um, change the electoral college such that we no longer do this winner takes all system. Um, and that the electoral votes are based more on the, the actual vote, the actual percentage of people who voted for each candidate. And I think that's something that would empower the vote in a lot of ways. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of pros and cons to having the Electoral College because it, it definitely, you know, there's there's always multiple sides to something, as I said earlier. And uh, I think having the Electoral College makes campaigning strategy function in a certain way. And without having the electoral college campaigning strategy would just function in a separate way. Mm -hmm. And there's pros and cons to each way that it would function, mm -hmm. um, such as like the areas that certain cam uh, candidates would rather focus mm -hmm. on campaigning, I think, mm -hmm. is a major issue about whether we have the electoral college mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think basically with the electoral college, uh, that gives um, that gives political power to states that aren't that populated, you know, and candidates will spend some time campaigning there. 
Uh, but without the Electoral College, candidates will spend most of their time in populated urban areas. So there is that concern that cities might get too much power. Um, and, and so it, it, is, it is a balance. But in general, I do think that it makes more sense for an election to be decided by whoever the majority of the country votes for. You know, uh, we've had two elections in the past two decades where the winner was um, the winner actually received fewer electoral votes or I'm sorry, fewer popular votes. We looked to 2016. Um, Donald Trump lost the election by around three million votes. You know, he's yeah. in office. Uh, and, and the question is open about whether our country is ready to move on to a more um, progressive way of putting people into power or not. Definitely. And I, I definitely think that that comes down to the key thing of uh, voter education. That mm -hmm. way, you know, once we have the educated voters, then we don't like, and, and we are all, we're, so already, we're already so close. Like, I mean, we're pretty much almost, pretty much already there. Mm -hmm. With the cabinet members that have been appointed to, to like positions in the government office and also the, the actions that the executive branch has been taking without consulting the legislative branch much it, it there's definitely areas where i feel like checks and balances can so easily slip through mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure um i guess uh, another thing that i wanted to that i was thinking about in terms of political apathy was uh, a lot of times the pe the friends that i talk to the young voters that i talk to will say i don't really know who to vote for um i don't really I don't really care that much, you know, they're both so terrible. Um, yeah. And I was just talking to one, one of my closest friends was saying, uh, you know, at the end of the day, November 6th comes around or whatever, November 9th, whatever it is this year, and I'll probably just flip a coin or something. And that was kind of mind-boggling to hear, you know, like here you are in this country where, where it is your constitutional right to have a choice. You have a right to choice and you're leaving it up to chance. Um, and, and, and yeah, like I was saying, there's there's a lot of reasons why people have been pushed to that point. The, but the conversation, the reason I bring that up is because uh, even when even when you're not sure who to vote for for president, for example, yeah, when you're voting for president, you're actually doing a lot more than that. Because as we know, the, the president has the power to appoint a whole list of different cabinet members, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's at the president's discretion alone, you know? Yeah. Um, for example, you know, attorney general, director of the EPA, secretary of education, all sorts of really important positions like that are decided by the president. Yeah. So if you care about those types of things, then at the, the very least you can do is... Um, pick a president who you think will be a good judge of character um, because ultimately all these cabinet members uh, in terms of the number of lives they're touching, they might be even more influential as a whole than the president alone. So that's another thing to keep in mind as a voter. Who do you want to be in these important positions, uh, department of justice, uh, director of education, all these really influential positions, who do you want to be in there? Uh, I would want someone who's educated in these fields and who's had a lot of experience. And so that's why when I pick a president, I want someone who's a real good judge of character. When you ultimately elect a president into office, they are not going to be able to make all the decisions themselves. It's going to be highly dependent upon who they surround themselves with, who are their advisors, who are their cabinet members. They are going to have to delegate a lot of their work to these individuals. Mm -hmm. And so 
When we elect a president, we not only place our faith in the president, but we place our faith in the people that they surround themselves mm-hmm. with. And uh, I, I definitely think that there's there's been a lot of different ways we have been feeling disconnected between the people who are trying to represent us and how we want to be represented. And I think we've been exploring so many different avenues of of ways that we can make ourselves heard because because of the fact that mm-hmm. we're not entirely resonating with, mm-hmm. with the people who are representing ourselves. And I know that petitioning has recently mm-hmm. caught on. Like change.org and stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I see I see like links to change.org yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they have so many success stories too. Um, have you ever like signed any petitions on there or like done anything with that? Yeah, I've, I've been pretty active on change.org. I think that's one of a, one of the super easy and effective ways to be involved in your political process. So they're not an exclusively political organization, but a lot of the movements that are happening recently are using change.org as a platform for, um, for advocating the cause. I'm starting to sound like a change.org commercial, but the whole point is that uh, when you petition, um, you're you're um, accumulating voices. You're, you're bridging the gap between people who might otherwise agree, but don't really know how they're supposed to agree or how to unify their voice. So that's another great way that uh, especially young people can get really involved in their voter systems. And I guess that um, brings up the conversation about why is voting even relevant to youth you know yeah you know just because of the fact that a lot of youth remains unengaged in uh politics a lot of politicians take advantage of this and they don't accurately take the time to represent them because they don't really feel a need to since they they're not they're not going to gain their support they know they're not going to vote right yeah so so they only focus on the issues that are relevant to other demographics Mm -hmm. And I think that leaves a huge portion of the country underrepresented. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think the the young voters are one of the biggest voting blocks that doesn't even vote. Uh, it's kind of crazy. I think people over 65, they represent, oh, or they vote at rates of like almost 70%. People under 35, they vote at rates of around 20%, which is kind of crazy. Uh, it makes sense because, you know, when you're young, there's more things on your mind, you're getting your life started, you're getting your job started, career started, stuff like that. Um, as a voter, especially a young voter who can have a lot of potential reach, um, it's really important that you have your voice heard. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first reason is that you do represent such a, a huge voting block that can definitely turn elections. Uh, and the second reason is that if you're young and you think that issues won't affect you now, you know, I'm say I'm like a 17 year old junior in high school. Why do issues even matter? Why do I even have to worry about who's going to be president? I'm just a kid. Well, four years from now, they're definitely going to matter. They're definitely going to affect you uh, when you're paying taxes, when, um, you know, maybe your job is on the line, when, uh, you know, people are sending, starting conflicts in other parts of the world. All of that is going to affect you really soon. And the sooner young people realize that, um, that the real world is coming, I, I think the better, at least in terms of how involved they want to get with politics. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I think uh, one of the things that I, especially as a youth, struggle with a lot is the fact that, you know, in between 
school work, working, and everything that goes on. I just have a very difficult time finding like time mm-hmm. to be able to like keep up with all of this, you know? Because mm-hmm. like I don't know, like I like on a good night, maybe like five five hours, mm-hmm. six hours mm-hmm. of sleep. Because you know we're we're always like running around because it's just kind of stressful sometimes. So like, do you have any strategies that you use to kind of like like keep up with it all? Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think social media has been really a double-edged sword in combating this problem uh, because kids are kids like us are always on social media. I sound like such an old person when I say that, but like just people in general are just always on social media because of the bite-sized consolidated information you get. So I think even if you don't have time to actively research and stuff, make sure you're following accounts where you're getting good information. And so the double-edged or the double-edged sword part of that is that um, you can't always verify the information if you're not going to put in the effort to research after the fact. You know, uh, especially this is especially relevant now with all the movements that are happening. There's so much information being spread. The information is so easily accessible, uh, but it's not very easily verifiable. You know, not everyone puts their sources. And so you read something, you know, and, and maybe it's a very inflammatory post and you're all up in your emotions. You're ready to go out and do something and be angry. Uh, but maybe what you read was completely false or maybe it was just one side of the picture. Uh, and, and and we just have to be mindful of using social media as a tool uh, the right way, you know, uh, yeah. checking our facts, calling our friends out when they're sending us unverified information um, and just being smart about it because I think I think the future of information uh, is definitely social media in, in an age where we just don't have the time to sit and research and read articles, you know? Yeah. And, you know, along with social media, so much has been changing in, in our current environment. And I feel like, you know, like I... Looking, looking back at, you know, the way that presidential debates used to happen, looking back at, like, how candidates used to just present themselves and, and everything, you know, I feel like there's been a huge change in the type of people that run for office and, and the way that the debates happen and the way that everyone presents themselves. And I, I don't know about you, but, like, I've just been hearing a lot of, like, ever since 2016 came around and... and uh, like I've just been hearing a lot of this lesser of two evils mm-hmm. thing that's been going around. Mm-hmm. And even this year, you know, I've been hearing that again. And I just, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, why? Like, you know, I mean, we didn't, I didn't, I definitely, it might've just been because I was so young back in, uh, back in 08 and back, back like right. in 12, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, and then, and then when 16 came around, you know, I was definitely, that was, that was the first election that I voted in. Um, so I don't know if this has been an age old thing, but I've talked to like my parents and stuff like that. And I've never really heard them say much about anything like this, like the lesser of two evils thing that we really hear a lot nowadays. At least I do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you, do you, what, how do you feel about that? Do you kind of hear that as well? Like, yeah, I hear it loud and clear. I think that what happened in 2016 um, 
was essentially this this pot that was just bubbling and bubbling and bubbling and and come 2016 wait i mean we'd been ignoring that pot people had been ignoring that pot for such a long time it just bubbled over you know all the uh all the festering uh anger and resentment for the political system and for the classic political elites that just that just bubbled over and um that's why we have uh, Donald Trump in office, a populist who appeals to the emotions of the people, who appeals to that resentment. Uh, and, and really, it, in, in a way, what he did was empower people who had previously felt voiceless because they felt that the political elites at the top uh, just weren't lending them their ears. So the, the, the discussion about the lesser of two evils things, I, I think that comes from a place of Number one, we have a political outsider that's just infiltrated the system, for lack of a better word, and uh, is is a very polarizing, very divisive figure, and, and people very feel very strongly about him in both directions. And that has agitated this um, lesser of two evils sentiment. Um, and I think the, the same thing is true for this election. I, I think when you put a political outsider against the symbol of the political elite, um, you, you'll certainly have that type of polarization. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I, I've done a lot of thinking about, you know, like how does actually the Republican party select the candidate that represents them? How does the democratic party select the candidate that represents them and how much of a say do the citizens actually have in in the person who represents the Democratic Party and the mm-hmm. Republican Party? Um, and you know, uh, it's it's got definitely got a process because you when you look at someone like Trump, like you said, is an outsider, and he just comes in and takes over the Republican Party. And if you even if you look back to his first presidential debate in the primaries of the 2016 election, you'll see on that stage of Republicans, when asked whether or not he would endorse another Republican if he didn't get the nomination, mm-hmm. and whether or not he would run his own independent campaign, he he was the only one who raised his hand and said, if I don't get the Republican nomination, I'm going to run, run my as an independent, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, how how do these how do these parties come to the conclusion of who they're going to put up as to represent them in the presidential election? Yeah, I, I think that um, what the answer would have been several years ago yeah. is that the the people the people will speak and um, we will put country over party and we'll we'll go with what's best for the country. Maybe that's a bit of a generalization, but I think I would say I would characterize that as the general tone years ago. I think you fast forward to 2020, um, we go back to that party politics thing. I think now when political elites decide who will who will be the representation, who will be the face of the party, they go with the person that they know will be successful in um, furthering the Republican Party or furthering the Democratic Party. Uh, not the person who will further the interests of the American people, essentially. How can a candidate further the party if they're not representing the interests of the American people? Well, I, I think it's... Uh, here's another way to say it. Um, 
Congress people, um, political people in political power will will hedge all of their support on someone uh, within their own party simply because that person is in their own party. Uh, we can look at the example of uh, Republicans and Donald Trump today. Uh, there's there's many Republican Congress people who don't agree with Donald Trump, many who do. Um, but among those who who don't agree with Donald Trump, they will still hedge all of their all of their political support behind him uh, in this party over country thing. They know that maybe what I want isn't in a divisive leader, but I will still, you know, go with my party. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think that, uh, you know, delegations obviously play a huge part in in who is going to represent that party. And I feel like th- that there is a lot of lot of disconnect between the person that the party actually picks to represent them and, and who the people want mm-hmm. representing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess I guess we um, we can end the conversation with uh, coming back full circle to uh, this idea of why why do we why do we popular popularize certain figures and ideologies and not others why do we why do we feel attracted to certain ideological viewpoints but not others and why does this group think emerge um and i i really think the most important part of that conversation is is how group think emerges in your own communities because politics and and the and words of like the national and and the country all that really is is just that's just people it's just lots of different communities and the strength of your communities and uh, how educated you are as a political community is going to make up the country so so i don't know like let's have that conversation about um what it's like to navigate this complex uh political story like in your own community with with you know your family your friends school schoolmates stuff like that yeah definitely definitely yeah and i i think that's a great place to wrap up for today um and i think uh we will definitely be discussing more topics in the next episode to come that build off of the things that we discussed today um so uh we thank you very much for tuning in and listening to us today and uh we hope to have you back for episode two